Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Political State Podcast from The Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder here in The Oklahoman's podcast studios, and today is Friday, March 8th, 2019. And my guest this week is Representative Cindy Munson, a Democrat from Oklahoma City. Representative, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good morning. Um, Yeah, good morning. Um, We are a few weeks into the legislative session. We're continuing to move along. I want to get into some of the issues that are in front of of your plate in in the legislature here in a a moment. But let me start. You... um, when we look at the political map in Oklahoma City, particularly for Democrats, it's changed quite a bit over the last few years. And you were really, um, you were really kind of instrumental in helping change that. When you think back, it was 2015, right, when you mm-hmm. won yeah. the election. You'd ran in 14 yes. against an established Republican incumbent um, you know, that had been in the seat for a long time. His wife had held the seat before that. So that was quite a, a David and Goliath uh, yes. a, a battle for you in 14. Um, he passed away the next year, and you were, you know, positioned to, to to run again in a special election and won, and and won a a Republican seat in, in Northwest Oklahoma City that people had talked for a long time that maybe it was transitioning a little bit and could be won, but you know nobody knew it until they saw it. Um, and your win kind of sparked. I mean, we saw uh, Colin Walkie win, you know, a neighboring district uh, the next year. Uh, you know, in the Senate, we've seen uh, Julia Kurt and, and Carrie Hicks win. And so you've really seen Democratic, the footprint in Oklahoma City has enlarged. Um, and you were the one that kind of lit that fire, or at least is that <laughs> is that how it feels? Yeah, in some ways, I think, you know, we were able to take away some doubt, not only from Republicans, but from Democrats, too. I mean, when I was out knocking doors against David Dank, I had Democratic voters who said, I know I'm a Democrat, but I really like David Dank, especially his stance on tax credits. And he was sort of the outsider in his mm-hmm. caucus. And um, there were many people who who had lived in those neighborhoods and in House District 85 for a long time who really appreciated what he was doing. So it was tough even getting Democratic support in some ways. Um, but I think, you know, getting out there and doing the work, uh, I think people underestimated that I would actually do the work that it that was required in order to win. Um, and I think just we created a model and a pathway for others to see that they could do it, too. There's nothing really special about me, necessarily. It's about the hard work and the ethic, the hard work ethic you'll put into to a race in order to flip the seat. Yeah. When you lost in 14, did you know you were going to try again in 16? So right after the plan, it would <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So right after I lost in 2014, I remember going to my consultants and saying, "I'm ready to go in 2016," okay. uh, because I understood what it was going to take. I had a better understanding, you know, the sort of the the ebb and flow of a campaign, the kind of work you have to put into it. Even though I was putting in a ton of work on in the evenings and on the weekends. Um, when you're going in as a new candidate, you learn so much about yourself and how you're going to articulate your issues and and your constituent or your future constituents. Mm-hmm. So voters at the time and what they're interested in and really trying to connect with them. Um, I was really motivated and enthusiastic about doing it. And I believed in myself in a different way after 2014, even though I had lost. I looked at the wins that I had by increasing the percentage of Democratic turnout, the money I was able to raise, even though I started with nothing, um, so I was really inspired by my own work and wanted to keep going, but of course could never predict it would happen six months later. Yeah, and of course, you know, when, you know, the incumbent passes away, there's just kind of a nuance and, you know, how you announce and when you do that stuff, but so you already sat on 16, so when the special election was called, you, you were you were ready to roll just yeah. quit sooner than you thought. Yeah. So, you know, you ran in 14, you ran in one in 15, then of course you got to run in 16. Mm-hmm. So 17 was a little bit of a break, and then 18 you have to run again. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the yeah. nature of the house, right? Every <laughs> two years so you're always kind of in 
campaign yeah. mode. But, you know, especially, you know, for you, three races in four years. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, that's quite a lot. And including the special sessions that we've had and yeah. everything that's been going on at the walkout arrest. I don't know that I've experienced yeah. that yet. Um, so this session has been a, certainly a different perspective than what I have experienced the last the three years coming before yeah. this. And so you are the minority caucus chair mm-hmm. this year as well. What's what's that role? So the main role of the caucus chair is really to um, organize the caucus, make sure that we, you know, we meet and we're, we get together and we really discuss issues. The minority leader is um, Representative Emily Virgin from Norman. Um, so she's really the the leader in the sense of guiding the policy and, and making sure that we're on task with all of that. Um, my job is really to keep the team together and make sure that they feel supported and that they understand the issues um, and really looking out for what's ahead for our caucus. You know, where, where can we... Um, look at seats that could be turned or could become Democratic um, and making sure that our new members feel supported as they go into their reelection campaigns. Um, and I ran because of the hard work I've had to put in into all of my campaigns, specifically in a Republican district. And so um, I feel like I do bring a skill set when it comes to fundraising and connecting with Republican voters and constituents. What's your, what is your style like in kind of leading, leading your caucus? I mean, how often are you, I mean, you just talked a little bit about the responsibilities that you have are you are you involved at all in kind of corralling votes or are you just kind of really based on the the caucus infrastructure yeah i help a little bit with that but the infrastructure is is the main point or the main focus of my role um i also i mean i really try to listen my leadership style really is to listen and hear where people are struggling whether it's an issue that they they can't wrap their brain around or uh, feeling connected to the caucus or feeling connected to the legislature as a whole Um, so new members are really where my heart is and make because i was a new member by myself i didn't come in with a freshman class i really had to navigate the waters and it wasn't anyone's fault it was just sort of an interesting time to come in Um, i didn't get a full orientation like freshmen usually do and so I'm um, really sensitive to that and wanting to mentor our new members and making sure they feel comfortable to use their voice and um, and really show their strengths we're all different I mean the makeup of the caucus now is a little more urban more progressive but we all bring our own strengths and expertise we have um, people with great backgrounds who are um, in our caucus that I think we're stronger than we've ever been yeah I would imagine that, you know, the caucus numbers are, are small. I mean, you are the minority party. Um, and while there were some gains in some of the urban seats, there was still a, a net loss this last year. I would imagine that it it kind of puts a little bit more pressure to be organized as a caucus. I mean, the Republicans, um, you know, they can afford to lose votes among their own ranks and still pass legislation. And it's kind of to be expected. It doesn't necessarily even look, you know, look bad if, you know, you know, the majority of Republicans are still supporting something it, they can pass through. What is that like for you? I mean, is there more pressure to feel like we've got to be on the same page? I mean, when someone casts a vote different than the caucus, is there a, you know, is there a little bit more of a thought to like, oh, come on, man, we need to get to get together. Yeah. I mean, how would you kind of describe that? Yeah, that I, you know, anytime that um, obviously we had a little more power in the last couple of years because of our numbers and um, and and just the own the Republicans fracturing on certain issues, especially around revenue and the budget. Um, For us, it is important that we stay together. We're small, so we have to stick with each other. There are going to be times where members disagree on issues, and we're always, I've always felt that our leadership has been open to that, and and we carry that into what we're doing as a leadership team now. 
And many times it's one-on-one conversations and just hearing each other out. Sometimes, especially new members, just need to have a place to uh, explain where they're coming from. And they're new to the process and really trying to wrap their minds around different issues and how they're perceived. And so um, team building is really important and listening is important in order to get us to stay together. You yeah. know, when you're listening and you're and you're um, genuinely caring for each other and, and where the... Um, conflict is if they feel like they can't come with the entire caucus that trust aspect is really important and we we work on that yeah so you know 2015 that's not that long ago and you know in in previous eras you know being in you know the house for four years you know would still make you a relative newbie but you're now a seasoned veteran when you yeah. look at you know a lot of the other ranks so how you you mentioned your role and and the you know your unique perspective and working with new members so tell me a little bit more about that your role in kind of helping kind of shepherd you know a lot of new representatives yeah when i in. when i came in in 2015 you know the late representative claudia griffith who's a close friend of mine and my mentor um still hard to talk about that she's not here uh but as soon as i won she was the first person to kind of help me navigate everything from getting my laptop to you know figuring out my parking spot i mean those are just things that you don't think about when you're running for office and then once you get into the building it's just an entirely new environment. So I really try to encourage our new members. Um, we have a retreat every fall, so we had some time to spend together. But um, beyond the policy, that's that's the easy stuff. You can read and figure it out and have discussions, but taking care of yourself and your mental health and making sure you have some kind of life outside of the Capitol, that's been really tough for me. I'm always working. Um, and just because of the nature of my experience and my journey to the Capitol, there really hasn't been anything in my life outside of running for office and retaining my seat. Um, and so, again, it's it's a lot of one-on-one conversations and mentoring in that way and just sharing my experiences and being there, you know, making sure that leadership in the majority caucus is not running over our new members and um, treating them as if they don't have a voice and reminding them that they fought to get here just like everybody else and making sure their bills are getting heard and that they're sitting on committees and Mm -hmm. um, that are of their interest and their expertise is really important. Yeah. So this session for you, what what are kind of your your main focus when it comes to actual legislation? Yeah. So the... I would say the top three pieces of legislation that I'm working on out of the eight, you know, they don't all make it through, (laughs) but three or four have, but the top three that have gained the most ground and the most traction, one on occupational licensing. I'm on the occupational licensing advisory board that um, is under the department. Well, it's not under the Department of Labor, but the commissioner has, has been overseeing it and sits as the chair. And so, um, in the fall and in the summer, spent a lot of time with uh, members on both sides of the aisle and then individuals from the private sector to talk about occupational licensing. Do we have too many? Are the barriers um, too high in order for people to get into the workforce? And when I agreed to be on the, the commission, it was because I was wanting to look out for people who are formerly incarcerated and making sure that they... Um, they're getting trained while they're with a DOC or they have some kind of professional background, but once they get out and they can't get back to work, then in my opinion, we're doing something wrong. Um, And so I I filed a piece of legislation, House Bill 2134, um, to not allow licensing entities to disqualify individuals because of a prior conviction, unless that conviction is directly related to the occupation. And then there's an appeals process and gives that individual enough time to show that they have 
had rehabilitation if the licensing entity is keeping them from getting their license. So there's also, um, I would say, sort of a companion bill by Representative Taylor, House Bill 1373, that passed out of the House earlier, overwhelmingly, this week. Um, and so I'm hopeful that mine will get heard because they really work together. His his language is a little different around moral um good behavior and moral turpitude. And so um, we've been working together on that issue. So I'm very excited about that. It was published on the floor calendar last night. Um, And then I'm working closely with uh, Leader Eccles on um, House Bill 2638, which is a step therapy reform bill. So step therapy is also known as fail first. So individuals with chronic illness or serious illness who need medications that are typically higher priced or more expensive, they'll run into a situation where their physician will write them a prescription, and but the insurance company does not cover, or their insurance plan doesn't cover that medication. So the, the insurance company will have them try other medications. And then if they fail that and it doesn't work and they can prove it, then the insurance company will go back and, and cover medications that do work. But the timeline is super long, so we're, we're basically creating an override process saying that the insurance company, if they deny coverage, they have to provide a clinical they have to provide clinical research on why they're denying um, that medication, the coverage for that medication. Yeah, and so, where is that bill at? Right, right now, now it's, um, it was just published to the floor as well, so we'll hopefully be hearing it next week. There's also a Senate um, bill, Senate Bill 509 by David Rader, Senator Rader, who's um, been running it in the Senate, and I think it was on the floor maybe last week, or mm-hmm. it's on its way. So, What kind of pressure do you get back on that? I mean, that you're taking on a powerful yeah. industry in the pharmaceutical industry. Do you feel that or is that I no mean, surprisingly there? there hasn't been a ton of pushback and it's an actual it's actually an interesting issue in that patient advocacy groups patients physicians and pharmaceutical companies are working together on this issue um, so really it, it's the PBMs and insurance companies who would typically push back and I haven't had um, as much as I thought I would, and that's probably because they knew it was coming. States all around Oklahoma have passed similar legislation. Um, Texas was the most recent, and so Oklahoma's really the donut hole. Um, And so we're just, we're, we're, why should our surrounding states have better coverage for individuals who need it the most? It's typically impacting people with MS, lupus, epilepsy, um, cancer patients. So those who really need their medications and can't wait 60 days for yeah. an insurance company to decide, oh, we'll cover that for you. Yeah. I, I want to go back real quick to some criminal justice reform efforts, and you mentioned your bill that deals with occupational licensing, um, and uh, which, uh, I, I, if I'm remembering right, this is the one that the, the governor brought up yeah. um, you know, early on and, and, and gave some attention to. Tell me, I'm curious, I'm going to ask this question, it's going to, so Republicans are gonna, maybe will disagree with this characterization, but I'm just going to do it for the sake of our argument. Um so Democrats have traditionally been kind of the, the lead voice on criminal justice reform when you look back over the last several years. Um, I mean, not always in Oklahoma, especially if you've got some, some rural, more conservative Democrats. So that may not be the case universally here. Um, but Democrats have been talking about it. And now it's kind of become a bipartisan issue. Now Republicans are talking about it. And, you know, partly because it's it's this big cost drain and there's a state, hey, we need to do something instead of spending billions on new prisons. Um, you know, there's also kind of a, a more compassionate angle to it. I think people are just becoming more aware and more impacted by high incarceration. This issue has legs because the Republicans are picking up the ball and, and, and carrying it. Um, what is that like as a, as a Democrat mm-hmm. 
when you've been kind of banging the drum on this for a while and your party has been, and now, you know, Fallon got a lot of credit going out as being, for, and some people was called a champion for criminal justice reform. I'm not sure you would say that at the beginning of her term. And, you know, instead it's picking that up and moving forward. I'm just, how do you balance the, like, we've been screaming about this issue forever and now the other side's getting credit versus, all right, what's best to move this issue forward? We need to work with our colleagues on the yeah. other side of the aisle. The unfortunate thing is we're used to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are many issues that we, you know, we champion. And then until, you know, what's interesting, I'll sort of give insight on when I'm knocking doors and, and talking to voters, because I really think the people have mm-hmm. been uh, because they have been a louder voice on this. You were able to see and we have to give credit to Governor Fallon because she was doing it when it wasn't popular in in the Republican Party. And I think what Governor Stitt's doing is he's realizing it is a business issue. I mean, he comes in with, you know, yeah. a business mindset. He doesn't and, make it wrong, per Right, se, yeah. right. And so he understands the cents and dollars of it all. But I've learned when I go and talk to constituents and I have conversations on things like criminal justice reform or health care, things that typically divide Republicans and Democrats, it's interesting to hear how they're a little more progressive on the issue, regardless of party, because ultimately people realize the common sense around making sure everybody has access to health care or they've been impacted by it. And with criminal justice reform in particular, so because our statistics are so bad and the rates are so high of individuals who've been in the criminal justice system, everyone's impacted. They have a family member or a student or a church member or a neighbor, someone that they know that has been impacted. Um, and in particular with the with the Republican Party, I've talked to many, there's a, many women in my district who are very involved in prison ministry, who've gone in with their churches and have the compassion has developed because they can see themselves um, as these women, um, specifically mothers who have been incarcerated for so long and away from their children. So they're they're sort of taking they are taking the compassionate um, angle. And also, I think the family piece and being separated from children is really important to them. Um, you know, what we'll continue to do is continue to push not watering down the criminal justice reform legislation. Every bill that came through judiciary in the House, the title was taken off, which for those who are listening and don't understand what that means, that means there's really no power in the bill. I mean, there's still work to be done and the title has to be back on until that can actually go through the full process to the Senate and to the governor. Um, so I'm I'm going to keep optimism and be hopeful that it's because we want to strengthen those pieces of legislation as opposed to weakening them. And we also can't forget about funding. You have to fund the programs that actually help people once they're out of incarceration. Um, I've been able to sit and listen to Commissioner White talk about her Smart on Crime proposal um, that she's been championing for many years. And it's at this point now of only $90 million more million to fund that proposal in order to be fully funded and have all the services that those who are incarcerated now would need. So mental health, health care, um, pre-tri- pre-trial services, and things like that. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I, I bring that up too, mainly also because, you know, I can remember several years ago when members of the minority party were kind of speaking out on criminal justice reform. And that seemed like such a lost cause that, you know, this is never going to happen in Oklahoma. Um, and sometimes, you know, we, we talk about the lack of power that the minority party has, but sometimes it takes just kind of planting that seed and continuing to bang the drum and, you know, putting yourself in a position that when the tide does turn, that you are there to be able to give it some some power, yeah. kind of similar to, to your election success, I, <laughs> yeah. guess, I guess so. Yeah, but. well, and part of being in the minority is is 
talking about the things that aren't being talked about by the majority and having the bravery and the courage to do it, knowing that it may not gain any ground in the beginning. But if you keep, like you said, keep talking about it, keep pounding the drum, eventually people um, hopefully will will catch on. But with criminal justice reform, I, I, I do think the Democrats have done a great job talking about this for many years. Um, but I'm grateful that the people have finally listened and it's moving the Republican Party yeah. to to do better yeah. around this issue. We've heard Republican leaders in both the House and the Senate, even the governor, talk about how there seems to be kind of a new spirit this year in the session. I mean, the governor and leaders held a press conference this week to announce their um, their agreement on some agency reform measures. Um, and it was it was a very kumbaya moment that, every, you know, this is different. After the turmoil we've seen in the last few years, things are different. How does it look like from your guys' side of the room? Yeah, I would say, I mean, just from my own personal perspective and experience, because of the last three years, this seems like a much smoother mm-hmm. <laughs> session yeah. in the sense of things are just sort of riding along. There's not, there aren't any huge fights in terms of, you know, issues that we're um, battling, ver- you know, compared to working on the budget and figuring out revenue. And and there's a few, you know, older member members who have been in the legislature who aren't anymore, who have said, this is what it u- used to look like. I yeah. mean, there weren't a, a ton of big fights. Yeah. Um, I'm grateful for that. I think there is time that we need time to heal and sort of build back those relationships. But at the same time, we can't, especially the minority party, we caucus, we can't get too comfortable thinking everything's fine. It's not. I mean, there's still schools who are, you know, need funding, teachers who are leaving the state. And um, yes, we're working on criminal justice reform, but we're not attacking it in such a way yet that we're making a true difference. And there's still remnants out of ha- being tough on crime there. You know, when you listen to the conversations that happen on the floor and committee, there's still members in the legislature who don't want this. Um and, and so we can't give up just because we've made a little bit of progress and we can't get too comfortable. Um, there's still many, many services that we need to fund and there's still people in Oklahoma who need it. Um, and in terms of the Republican caucus, you know, I think they're, they, they're just happy to have a fresh new face. And, and trying to work together because it's important for them to do that. But for us, it's important that the minority stays vigilant and, and continue to talk about the issues we've always been talking about. Um, I think teachers and the education community did a good job bringing to light um, the real struggles that students face and teachers face, but Oklahomans in general. Um, and we can't give that up just because they're not at the Capitol in thousands and thousands. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, we be- began this conversation talking about your your election and your seat. So let's kind of in going back to that. Um, no election this year. So only the second time yeah. <laughs> that you, you are in a year where you haven't had an election. Yeah. Um, but you're in the House. So you're always continuing to kind of keep your eyes forward. Um, it sounds like you're doing that. So you're, you're looking at 2020. You're mm-hmm. planning to run again, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And wh- so what does that look like in a non-election year in the House? You're still, but you're still, you yeah. know, kind of barreling towards that. Yeah. Day. So this will be my first real interim. Um, I'm very excited about doing the constituent work that I really love to do. Um, I get a lot of visits, a lot of calls and emails. Part of that is just the nature of my district and then the proximity. So I have a lot of people who come by. I keep track of all that information and I use it so I can go out and and revisit them in the fall. Um, I'm excited to get back into my schools and see what's happening um, since the walkout. Um, and just being back in my neighborhood and knocking doors without really having to ask for too much. Um, So being on the ground and being back with the people who got me there in the first place is really important to me. Um, 
uh, and doing research. I mean, you know, we we spend a lot of time in the off season trying to have whether it's interim studies or separate work groups or working with different members of the legislature. I typically try to focus if I have legislation that fails and doesn't make it through that I really like to see make it through. I try to take that off time to meet with um, all the stakeholders and whoever would be involved, whether they're for it or against it, to get to to sit at the table and really talk through those issues. Um, and and see how we can do better in the next session yeah so it'll be it'll still be a lot of work it just looks a little different yeah a little different pace what uh what is your what do you feel like your political future looks like i mean <laughs> i would ask you have you given thought you're a politician i know you have yeah. you're always always giving and thought. part of that is because everybody asks you know yeah um right now and this is an honest answer i'm really happy in the house it's stressful and mm-hmm. you know be just because of the nature like we've discussed it's it's sort of you never really get to slow down but i really love being able to use um, my my place in the legislature to talk about issues that I faced personally growing up or in my own life and um, helping people who feel like they can never have access to power or be in a place that I'm in uh, that they can, specifically students and girls. I mean, that's really, I spend a lot of time talking to students and um, young women um, but I hope to stay in the legislature as long as I can. I only have 10 years left, <laughs> which I think will probably fly by. Um, but I'll stay open to whatever is, you know, whatever's out there and making sure that my strengths match that position. I've, we see people all the time who abandon their positions to run for something and then it doesn't work out. And so I think it's important to be mindful of what's possible and what's realistic. Um, and, and, being a Democrat, although in Oklahoma City and in the metro areas, it's changing. Um, and I think there is an appetite to have Democrats. Um, obviously, Kendra Horn won the 5th District, and so there is an appetite to to balance out government um, at the state statewide level and also at the federal level. So that's exciting. Um, and there's no way, just like me, that she could have gotten there with only Democratic votes. So we know Republicans are interested in moderating some of what's going on at the federal and statewide level. Well, we talk about your wins inspiring others. Does, I mean, you talk about represent our Congresswoman Horn. I mean, does that inspire you? I mean, oh, not yeah. to say that you're going to run for CD5 <laughs> yeah. at some point, but does that make you think, hey, this is a, oh, yeah. a path? And, you know, watching and Kendra, Congresswoman Horn and I are, are friends. And so uh, watching her, I mean, watching her on C-SPAN and reading about her is, it is inspiring knowing that first it's still unbelievable I have a friend in Congress um, and that I'm in the legislature. It's very surreal. Um, but it, and a lot of her winning really pushed me to run for chair. And I know that may sound a little strange, but I, I'm always sort of second guessing myself. And, um, but when I saw what she was able to do, it was something inside of me that said, I can do more. I should be contributing more to my caucus. And um, I have been on the leadership team the last three years um, or two years, but I wanted to do more. I wanted to yeah. contribute more and watching her win. So seeing someone that I'm close with and Commissioner Carrie Bloomer and Carrie, Senator Carrie Hicks and Julia Kurt, I mean, watching all of us, it has empowered me and inspired me. And so I'm open to whatever's next after this when yeah. it comes. And it's, I know it's different with a congressional seat compared to your district, but there are some similarities in the sense that, you know, she flipped a district that if you talk to a lot of Republicans, they'll say, this is still a Republican district. This is just a blip. And we're going to go after her hard for 2020. I think you got probably some similar sentiment when you first won. People saying like, "This is still a Republican district," and, and you've established yourself. I mean, you've you've made this a, a Democratic seat. No, you don't take anything for granted. Um, what I mean, let's say what advice you have for her. But I mean, how do you see the similarities? And um, you know, what's it going to be like for her to run for? Because it's 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 one thing to win and flip a seat. 
it's also probably a pretty big challenge that first time when you have to defend it. Then yeah. Too. So I was talking about having a friend in Congress being surreal. It's also very surreal opening the paper or seeing what people are saying, opponents and proponents. It's because it just mirrors exactly. I mean, I'm reading what was happening to me yeah. or I'm seeing and listening and hearing what was being said about me. And I would say she's fortunate that no one has uh, come out openly to say that they're running for the fifth district. I mean, no one, the candidates who ran against me did not waste any time. They sort of, you know, it was like as soon as I won, they sort of took a little pause and then immediately started announcing that they would run. And so what I would say is to just stay focused on the work and do what the people elected you to do. And of course, in the back of our minds, we always have to think about reelection not because we necessarily want to, it's because it's the nature of the job. She's done a fantastic job traveling back and forth and coming back home and visiting with constituents. And, you know, that's tough being in a legislative district, getting back out there after taking, you know, you're in in session all week long and then getting back out there. And um, the truth is that is it is emotionally taxing and mentally taxing to you know constantly be on and and making sure you're there for everybody and so I can't imagine right now traveling back and forth from DC to Oklahoma but she's she's her energy is high she's out everywhere I mean I see her everywhere on social media and um, she'll let me know she's in town and um, it takes a lot of work and what I hope is that the people recognize that that she's not taking it for granted she's um, coming back and visiting with the people and she's certainly making hard decisions what's happening in Washington is there's a lot going on and um, and she has a little bit of power being in the majority and she's already you know become a leader in the space industry and she's holding a chair chairmanship which is inspiring and what I think Oklahomans should pay attention to and let go of some of that you know that this is a Republican held seat so it should be that way forever and instead look at what she's overcome and what she's able to accomplish and and let us have a different voice in Washington DC and that's really what I asked for when I was running for re-election um, you know look at my work ethic and look at what I'm able to do just because we may not align 100% politically doesn't mean that I don't have the leadership skills to fight for what's right for Oklahomans and and to honor some of that work um, and not just automatically take it away because you want yeah. political power on the other side what advice would you give her as she's battling her political identity because you talk about the similarities and I think this is one of the similarities is that you know you win so you are you are a Democrat holding a previously Republican seat. Republicans will try to cast you as this really progressive liberal, you know, uh, and, and trying to get some of the those conservative votes back out. Um, and will and then we'll sometimes say, see, she's not even can you know she's not even confident in her own party affiliation. I, she wears green. She didn't wear blue. Yeah. You know, so the, you get questioned from the right about your Democratic credentials. Um, and then I'm sure on on the left, you sometimes get questions about like, well, why are you not com- you know all in on all these progressive issues when you're realizing I do have a purple district, so I do have to kind of weigh right. those things. That's very similar with what she's facing right now because she's getting criticized by being a Pelosi Democrat, um, and then there are some Democrats who are criticizing her for voting for, with Republicans on some issues. Right. Yeah, I think it, you know my my number one piece of advice is to be herself, and you you have to vote your conscience, and you have to be smart about who you represent. Those are the realities, and I think that that's the best thing we can do as a public servant, and and to just quiet the voices from either side. I still hear what exactly what you're saying, and um, 
you know, at the end of the day, I know what I have to do in my position and I have to be true to myself. And there will be times and there have been times where I've taken more progressive stances and and then I will have um, pushback from some of my more conservative constituents who call or show up. Um, and and what I do and what I would advise is to to show up to those conversations as well and have the hard conversation, because every time I have one of those talks with constituents who maybe aren't happy, you know, those who don't live in your district who are sort of on social media and tearing you down that's another story but the people you represent who have power over you um, to to represent them and their voice whether it's in dc or in oklahoma city here at the capitol um, making sure that you are listening to them and hearing them out and sharing your point i leave every conversation better and they understand me better and i understand them better um, I don't think a lot that a lot of that happens in politics. Um, so it's easy to criticize whoever we see on television or whoever we're reading about in the newspaper. But when you actually have to humanize each other and talk about the difficult issues and and I get requests all the time from people who want me to do something that I just won't do. It's not always necessarily because of my party, but that's just not where my values lie. And so um, I write back and explain why and ask if you want to have a, if you want to continue to have a conversation about this and let's do that. But um, it's easy to send, you know, Facebook posts and emails that are, that are, are not great, but, but having conversations is really important because then you can walk away knowing you disagree with each other, but that doesn't doubt the leadership ability or the ability to lead in, in this political environment that we're yeah. in right now. Well, and when you flip a seat, you, you learn that you realize that every vote counts yes. um, and you realize that you had to get some support from the other side of the aisle if it's kind of a purple district. Um, and so that kind of weighs on you, I'm sure, that it's not easy to just – there are some districts where if you're a Democrat in a strongly Democratic district or vice versa – and, you know, a voter of the other party has a complaint, it's probably easy to, to brush that off your shoulder a little bit. It's a little bit different when you when you realize that, hey, I mean, the math is not the math does not give me the luxury right. to ignore people I disagree with. Yeah. And I would say and I think Congresswoman Horn would say this, too. It makes you a, a better public servant when you have to actually sit down and think through both sides. It's harder and it's more taxing. And yes, there are many days I'm like, oh, I wish I could just do this because it's easier, you know, in terms of making decisions. But um, it, it also makes the job more fulfilling. And what's been interesting is that I'll have constituents, especially those who regularly contact me, they'll they'll want me to do, we'll disagree on one issue, but then the next issue we will agree. So you don't want to break those relationships and that ability to continue talking to each other and having their respect. Um, because what I've learned knocking doors is that whether you agree or disagree, the respect comes from showing up and standing there and having the conversation without tearing each other down and um, and really trying to hear from each other. We've totally dehumanized politics, <laughs> you know, and I think what's happening in Northwest Oklahoma City, and I would attribute it to women, that we have we've just done a better job listening and, and taking on the more difficult conversations. We hear things that male candidates will never hear when it comes to family and why we've chosen to do something like this or, you know, um, are we old enough? Are we smart enough? Are we experienced enough? Those are things that I know for a fact that my male counterparts have never, ever had to deal with. Yeah. And so I think we just bring a different strength and um, we bring a different um, commitment to the job because it's more than just fighting for a particular issue we're fighting for our voices to be heard and and so we're going to fight for those voices who aren't heard even if we don't agree yeah 
Yeah. Well, Representative Munson, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate yeah, the conversation. Thank you. This was great. Thank yeah. you, Ben. This is going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. You can find this in each and every episode in your favorite podcasting app, newsok.com, and uh, a video version on YouTube as well. For The Oklahoman, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you for another episode of Political State next week. Thank you.